As we said, Somalia has been particularly hard hit by the drought in the Horn of Africa, and yesterday the UN declared it a famine area. It's estimated that 3.7 million people there need immediate emergency rations to survive. That's one half of Somalia's total population. But the U.S. State Department has had to clear some extra hurdles to provide food aid to the country. Here to explain why is Eliza Griswold, a senior fellow at the New American Foundation. Her book, The Tenth Parallel, Dispatches from the Fault Line Between Christianity and Islam, will be released in a paperback edition by Picador next month. And I'm very pleased to welcome her to the second part of today's underreported segment. Thank you for having me. Last week, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton said that the United States was willing to send humanitarian aid to Somalia, but it wasn't until late yesterday that it was reported the State Department would actually provide that food aid. Why did it take a whole week between the announcement and the decision to send the aid? Well, essentially, there's a bureaucratic snafu going on, and it's still going on, between state and treasury that makes it impossible for the U.S., even though the U.S. has now pledged $28 million, how exactly that aid is going to reach the ground is still uncertain. Uh, And just to note, that's about a tenth of what the U.S. sent in, in military assistance in 2009. So, Even that figure is a bit disappointing, although it's really exciting, and and I do commend Secretary Clinton on her announcement because it's brave. Um, But what's been going on is there's a law that the Treasury Department has, which is essentially to keep money from reaching terrorists' hands. And that law, which is called OFAC, from the Office of Foreign Asset Control, means that right now, no aid groups that receive more than $150,000 of U.S. aid have licenses to operate in Somalia. It's, it's really, really a problem. So no matter who wants to work there, if they get that much U.S. aid, they can't do anything on the ground. So even though this is really a State Department or even a Department of Agriculture issue, the Treasury Department is the one that's uh, really involved. But hasn't the Office of Foreign Assets Control made exceptions in the past for other states that are controlled by groups the U.S. has labeled as terrorist organizations? Exactly right. Not even groups, entire states. I mean, OFAC has issued a blanket license in Sudan, which is on our state supportive terrorist list. You know, so, I mean, if you can give money to Bashir, if you can find a way to do that, you should find a way to give money to Somalia as well. Also, Gaza. We supply aid in Gaza as well. Um, I was actually speaking to state yesterday about this and hearing back from them, well, you know, these licenses are only part of the problem. What do we do if we end up on the ground? And al-Shabaab says, thank you very much, we're taking half the food. Um, so there are absolutely very real challenges to providing aid, but blocking these licenses is not the way to solve them. Well, you mentioned earlier that we send military assistance. Uh, do, does it all go to this very uh, barely functioning government in Somalia and none of it get to al-Shabaab? Well, I mean, this barely functioning government, they do control four whole kilometers of of the country. So that gives you some some idea of their sway. Um, and Al-Shabaab yeah. controls the rest of the country? Al-Shabaab controls most of south-central Somalia, uh, and then TFG is out of control of the rest of the country. So, they, so, so the official government controls about two miles? You've got it, two whole miles. That's where you are safe under TFG rule and nowhere else. So this food crisis uh, would be pretty much 
in an area that's controlled by al-Shabaab. That's part of the political challenge. I mean, the two areas where the U.N. has officially declared famine and eight more are to follow, but those first two areas, uh, Lower Shabeli and Bakul, those are both al-Shabaab-controlled areas. So we have to look at al-Shabaab's political interest here, too, because essentially they don't want all these starving people to leave their area. They're not going to have any power at all. So opening these corridors to aid is a way to keep people and keep power under their own control. Now, we were just talking about the EU and its own problems, but uh, have they uh, similar restrictions in, in sending aid to Somalia? Their, their restrictions and their process of sending aid is a bit different. The challenge is that the U.S. is has traditionally been the largest donor. So without U.S. aid, the EU impact is going to be very much too small. Uh, the, uh, the problem here is that food can be used as a tool, you're saying. That's the, the main concern. Al-Shabaab can uh, give it to its supporters and deny it to other people? Exactly. Food has been used in Somalia for the past 20 years as a weapon of war. You know, I mean, I've worked with a woman who runs an incredible refugee camp on her own with, with no international help right now for 90,000 people. And she's been attacked both by, by all sides, really. And why? Because they want the food that she's providing to people. So it's a very, very real issue how to safeguard food once it arrives in Somalia. Well, hasn't al-Shabaab banned foreign aid workers from the area? That is affected yes. in the past? They absolutely – in 2009, they banned foreign aid workers. They've also targeted them. I mean, World Food Program was just pointing out today that, you know, they've – 14 of their workers have been killed in Somalia. And while I've been in country, many aid workers have been killed. So so Shabab is – these guys are no joke. They are some very – they're a ragtag militia. Some switch sides every day. Some are a very nasty bunch. And – so they've threatened aid workers, they've targeted them, and now they are saying, you know, you can come back and our drought committees will work with you. And people are people are right to be concerned. I mean, the U.S. is right to pay very careful attention here and work out terms with al-Shabaab, but simply not to engage is not going to be the answer. Some members of al-Shabaab are said to have ties to al-Qaeda. Oh. Absolutely, 100%. I mean, that is, there's no question there. And what's happened, al-Qaeda has used Somalia as really a flank in their PR war, saying, you know what, look what's happening to Muslims in Somalia now. Look at this crusader, U.S. and traditionally Ethiopian enemies invading. You guys have to go protect your fellow Muslims. Um, so that... And now what's happening is that's going from a PR war, like, okay, this is a call to arms, to actual, there's much more presence now that members of al-Qaeda from Yemen are actually training in Somalia, and, and that is of substantial concern. Now, Ethiopia invaded a few years ago uh, to, uh, to supplant al-Shabaab. Has it completely withdrawn its forces? Ethiopia invaded to... to uh, supplant a much more broad-based Islamic courts union government, which was actually the first functioning government that Somalia has had in more than 20 years. And this was a broad-based movement of essentially religious leaders, businessmen, and undeniably a couple of members of al-Qaeda. So al-Shabaab didn't exist when Ethiopia invaded, which was – and Ethiopia was backed by, you know, tacitly backed by the U.S. and backed with U.S. air support as well. 
that invasion created al-Shabaab, I'm sorry to say, um, because a popular militia, the exact, exactly what they were trying to, to stop, this group of, you know, Islamist militants up in arms, that's exactly what the Ethiopian invasion and occupation created. And unfortunately, that's what we're facing now. Well, we're talking about a drought, but I would assume that the political instability in the country is exacerbating the situation. Oh, absolutely. You know, we, as we know, famine and drought, after 30 years of watching how this goes, it's rarely just about a lack of food. There are certainly major, major climate factors here, and climate change plays a major role in what's going on with this famine because of the process of the world heating up and and the drought and land drying out. At the same time, the politics of food is just as important as its actual growth, and that's what we're seeing. People try to control it in order to strong-arm uh, civilian population. Yemen is directly across the Gulf from Somalia. Uh, has uh, there been spillover from the crisis there? Absolutely. Somalis have been – Somalis traditionally, when things turn really bad at home – will get on small boats uh, and head to Yemen. Um, and Yemen, now it gets tricky. I mean, there's a, there's a whole race problem going on between many, you know, what many Yemenis think with these newly arrived black people coming, right? There's a whole ancient history of enmity. But in addition, what makes it hard is that even when people want to go home to Somalia, the UN can't send them directly to Somalia because it's a war zone. So if people get out of Somalia, it's very difficult to get them back. And that, that definitely makes things much more tense in Yemen. We have a link to your story about the situation at the State Department on our show page at WNYC.org. Eliza Griswold is a fellow at the New America Foundation. Her book, The Tenth Parallel, Dispatches from the Fault Line Between Christianity and Islam, was published in hardcover last year, and it's coming out in paperback next month from Picador. And, Eliza, I want to thank you so much for being part of our underreported series today, talking about the food delays, uh, the, aid, the delays in aid to Somalia. Well, thank you so much for talking about it, because it's so important, and it's an honor. So thank you. On tomorrow's show, find out how scientists are making robots more human than ever and how these sophisticated machines could one day be our chefs and babysitters. Then two of the stars of Measure for Measure in repertory in this year's Shakespeare in the Park productions. Also, Corey Archangel discusses his new exhibition at the Whitney Museum that revolves around the idea of product demonstrations. And this week's Please Explain is all about those pesky weeds and why they keep cropping up in your garden. The Leonard Lopez Show is produced by Blake Schick, Stephen Valentino, and Julia Corcoran. Melissa Eakins, the executive producer, and we had help today from Rachel Hartman, Russell Jacobs, and contributing producer Virginia Doris. Bill O'Neill was at the audio controls. I'm Leonard Lopez, your host. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you tomorrow.